and for a world that would never again be able to take them up on their most simple and eloquent invitation, which was if you get lost, to come on home with Green River. So let me end by saying, in their day, Credence never got the respect they deserved. Who would have thought in 69 that before the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Moby Grape, Strawberry Alarm Clock, or Electric Prunes, Credence would be inducted into a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame if there was going to be one. They committed the sin of being too popular when Hitmas was all. They played no frills American music for the people. In the late 60s and early 70s, they weren't the hippest band in the world, just the best. So let me, yeah. Anyway, so let me finish by saying congratulations, men. Do a job well done. And to all the naysayers, ha, 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 they told you so. <laughs> so Doug Clifford, Stu Cook, Jeff Fogarty accepting for his dad. John Fogarty, congratulations. And induction to the hall. A very warm welcome wherever you're listening to the Misadventures in Music podcast with me, Mick Ord. And me, Ian Prowse. Ian, did you recognise that voice from about 10 years ago? <laughs> yeah, I'd, being a Springsteen obsessive, I've already seen that. And uh, I love it. I think he did He did a great job, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. Music uh, of the people, no frills. I really, you know, that, that's fabulous, isn't it? And when I heard what Springsteen had said about Creedence, I, I decided to Google them. And about two hours later, I was knocked out by their story as well as by the music. It was at the, I remember I went to see him once and he played um, Rockin' All Over the World. And I was absolutely appalled because, you know, I thought he was doing a status quo song. The unhippest band to ever come out of the UK and, you know, and, and widely laughed at. And then somebody said, no, it's a John Fogerty song. Felt like a fool for not knowing, but I was yeah. deeply, re deeply relieved that he wasn't doing status quo. I mean, I mean, in, in 69, they produced three classic albums in one year. Bestsellers, yet within a few years, they stopped making music after breaking up acrimoniously. And yet they do remain one of the most influential bands in rock, as, as Springsteen has just said. In many ways, they were Americana before the before the term was invented. I've been listening to them for the past few days and it sounds like, you know, like almost like a blueprint for a lot of Americana that you hear today. I've gone deeply into the story, so I can't wait to speak to our guest. And I have immense sympathy with John Fogerty as the principal songwriter, you know, at the start of this. There seems to be awful trouble amongst the band members We'll get to this, obviously, as we do the podcast, and I'm sure uh, our guests will illuminate it all, but as a principal songwriter in a band with all of the band members trying to muscle in on it, I have some sympathy for him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when my very first band, when we had a major label, every single band member came to me pretending they were songwriters, and I would have been relieved if they were. It turns out they wasn't, but it was just, it was tough to to argue with them, you know. So I, I'm at the very beginning of this story, and we're going to find out a lot more in depth. I'm on John's side. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> well, as you know, in this episode of Misadventures in Music, we're going to be celebrating the music of Credence with the writer John Lingan, whose book, A Song for Everyone, tells their story in a compelling and evocative way.
John, great to meet you. Thank you both for having me. This is a real pleasure. Thank you. Now, because obviously we can see you at the moment, I can tell that you don't remember Credence, do you? You're much too young. <laughs> so what attracted uh, you to write their story? You're absolutely right. Uh, they they count as my parents' generation's music. And this was not the first component of it, but that was certainly one reason why I was excited to write the book is that I, I do think that a lot of especially in the states I, I can only I can only say a lot of the history and the sort of cultural history about that time is obviously has been and still is written by people who lived through it and so I was I suppose a little inclined to sort of tackle it or sort of research it myself as someone who doesn't bring that kind of baggage to it but the instigating factor of sort of why I write about this group is very similar to what you were just describing Mick I was I was listening to them and have listened to them my entire life. You know, when I was sort of thinking about what my next book would be, I was thinking about artists who maybe could use a biographical treatment of this kind. And when this idea sort of came up in conversation, my first thought was like, oh God, we don't need another boomer era music book because there's been a billion of them. And then when I actually learned a little bit about Credence's story as a band and particularly the fact that they had met as a group of people well, two of them were brothers but the the quartet as we know it was really in place from like 1959 or 1960 and lasted through their breakup in 1972 and that really made me think like that's not a story you hear that often is you know we hear a lot about the bands that made it big and made an impact in the late 60s in the Woodstock era but the bands that sort of traversed the entire actual 1960s and their first, you know, their first sort of influences were very sort of early rock and roll R&B style groups. And their first studio experience was playing in a on like on a doo-wop track. And then that lasting all the way up to to the early 70s, that to me seemed like a really fascinating journey to be able to tell. And then of course, there's no lack as we've already sort of uh, alluded to, there's no lack of sort of interpersonal storytelling to do here and different interpretations of the gripes and the and the who did what and the who was right about it kind of uh, aspect to their story as well. So once I sort of had all of those kind of swimming around, it started to feel like a book to me rather than just, you know, more than just a band. I've been listening to the music for the past few days and it's so firmly attached to America, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't just, it did, the success didn't just stop there. They were huge in the UK and I think Europe as well, weren't they? Yeah, very big, very big. They were one of the first bands that I can think of, like an individual band that was traveling like by plane through Europe to do multi-country tours. And I know from reading some of the uh, the music journalism in the UK at that time and talking to some people who were even writing it a little bit, that uh, culturally they loomed just as big as well. But yes, their, their influences at least directly. I mean, they love the Beatles and uh, and other bands from that time. But uh, in terms of the direct influences and definitely the sound, it's about as pure an American sound as you're going to get, I'd say. The uh, the name Creedence Clearwater Revival was their third name, wasn't it, of a band? Sort of. I mean, it yeah. depends on how you count it. So basically, Stu and 
Doug, the future bass player and drummer, they met in, I guess, what we would call uh, seventh grade. So like what was then considered like uh, junior high school. And they, by the end of that year, also met John. And the three of them as a, as a unit started playing together as the Blue Velvets. John's older brother, Tom, was already at that time, he was four years older than those guys and was already a sort of out and about performing gigging musician at that time as well. So he would occasionally sit in with them on gigs, singing without a microphone even, and they would perform as Tommy Fogarty and the Blue Velvets. Then they went to, they got a, a, a record deal from Fantasy Records, which was a small jazz label uh, in San Francisco. And they were told, like, we should change the Blue Velvet's name and we'll, how about we call you The Visions? So they were The Visions for a minute while they recorded their very first sort of sides as a quartet. And then when they received those records from the label, the label had made the decision to sort of capitalize on the British invasion by renaming them the Gollywogs. I have to say, that is not a term that we have a great deal of understanding of, I feel like, in, in the States. We we don't, that's not like a, because I have spoken to a few British and, and, and English folks, and every time I mention they have that exact face that you both made, which is of just like total, total disbelief. So I can only imagine what what that actually uh, sounds like and means uh, to your ears. But in the news this week, it's come up again this week uh, because because we're kind of in the middle of a bit of a right wing revolution here in, in the UK. Indeed. So, and because and because of that, you know, they it's time for the term gollywog to be uh, to be told that it's actually not that bad and it's and all of the rest of it you know what i mean without actually asking black people is, is it offensive Terrible. or not Terrible. and of course it's offensive it's outrageous but you know the fact that it's even been discussed as if it might not be uh, tells you that everything about the state of this country right now. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that a record label executive would would think to name a band of white kids that in the 60s, I think, would probably like the most charitable reading is it shows that we really just don't have that much of an understanding of that word. I mean, the band themselves were completely embarrassed by this. And on top of that, they as another sort of, as a capitalization on the British invasion, they were asked to sort of wear these ridiculous costumes and such as where so they would look like the, like a sort of technicolor version of the zombies or whatever they were supposed to look like. So they performed for three years or so as the, as the Gollywogs from 1964 to 1967. You can find there has since been like a collection of their singles released under that name. And the songs are great. I mean, name is rather unfortunate, but the songs are very good. And then when uh, Saul Zance, who then became a, a, a very important member or character in the Credence story, when he purchased Fantasy Records, took over and he knew those guys because he had worked there before, he said, okay, it's time for a new name change. And so why don't we do whatever you guys want to call yourselves? And so they chose this 
I don't know, rather uh, random assortment of words that were sort of made to capitalize on funky, multi-syllabic uh, San Francisco era bands at the time. Like, I, I think Springsteen just mentioned Strawberry Alarm Clock or, you know, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service and that kind of thing. So they chose Creedence Clearwater Revival. And so I guess that that brings them up to, I think it's five names if we include... <laughs> Wow. If we include the visions and Tommy Fogarty in the Blue Velvets, I think that makes it five. And um, for me, uh, referring it to my own, my own life as a musician and a songwriter, sure. it it will have been a journey of many many disappointments. Then you know that it oh, yes. hadn't quite worked out for them before they ever get anywhere near Creed and Clearwater Revival. They've had like a you know almost a decade of of uh, false starts, disappointments, struggles amongst themselves, uh, you know, uh, together as a, as an act. Oh, they've obviously managed to stay together as a, as a unit, but they would have had to weather all of these storms. So they, by the time it started to happen for them, it was, uh, they kind of seen everything, hadn't they? I would agree with that. I think they're, um, the blessing was that they started so early. I mean, they were all, uh, I guess, except for Tom, the other three were about 13, you know, when they first started playing together. Right. So you don't you don't really have the, the clock has not really started ticking in quite the same way. But, you know, certainly by the time they all graduated high school, which would have been 1963 or so, 1963 or four. I think that's when they started to feel it's definitely when John Fogarty started to feel a bit of pressure sort of creep into the proceedings because he did not go to college. He came from a very sort of working class background. His older brother, Tom, was already working like at the electric, uh, the local electric utility company. He was working at a gas station. And so they simultaneously like jumped into it with great excitement at that time. But yeah, the uh, the disappointments, they, they did come. I mean, they uh, they had one sort of regional hit in 1966 called Brown Eyed Girl, which always struck me as funny because it was bore no resemblance to the Van Morrison hit from a year earlier, but great tune. I mean, as I'm sure you can relate, you you feel these disappointments, but you get close enough or like you you move just far enough ahead where you can feel like you're getting closer even as you're taking like individual setbacks at the time so it's like you know their second single after brown eyed girl didn't do as well oh but then wrinkle of all wrinkles was the vietnam war draft began so they were like in a holding pattern for a period of time as two members john and uh doug the drummer uh entered the uh army reserves they they were not uh sent overseas but they were sent all over the country and were doing basic training and the band was sort of waiting to be you know a band again as they hoped that their friends and bandmates in particular i would say their singer and leader and songwriter weren't enlisted and sent over to asia where things were not looking good for people who were sent over there at that time by the time that ended i think the san francisco scene was sort of in full swing and they were able to sort of get a foothold in that around the same time that this new owner of Fantasy Records came aboard. So it's like a lot of 
positive things were happening, either as you, you didn't see the eventual real success of it. In 1968 was when their first record as Creedence Clearwater Revival came out, and it did okay. And then, in a way that I don't think anyone could have expected, it was January 1969 when Proud Mary came out, and the rest, as they say, is history. They just they they did not let up for three straight years, and the hits did not stop for that time. And I, you know, it's, um, it's fascinating to think like, were they prepared for that moment by all of the frustrations and, and time and woodshedding and however you want to put it, it wasn't as if they threw themselves into fame with any experience of that, you know, they didn't, it wasn't like you, they knew how to how to be a famous band. They just knew how to be a struggling workaday band making very little money. Well, that's kind of the same thing as what Springsteen went through, wasn't he? He always says he was, he played everywhere and anywhere for, you know, years and years and years till he got a record deal. So mm -hmm. musically you have, you've done your apprenticeship, haven't you? Yes. You paid, you paid your dues and you can, and I guess that's what happened with, with the lads here. They, they could hold their own musically anywhere with anyone. So when you get put under pressure at say shows, or maybe they went out and supported other acts or whatever, they they could shine because they you know they they've been working their balls off for so long that they they had the chops. Uh, the first first track now it's born on the bayou and you've already said they were from the San Francisco area, not Louisiana necessarily. <laughs>
That's a, a hell of a groove they've got going there. How did they record their songs? Was, did they play live in the studio? And that was uh, that was by design, and it was uh, absolutely the case that it was uh, mostly live in the studio. You know, when you talk about a band being, we were just we were just discussing like a band being prepared for their moment. You know, like whether or not this group could have been prepared to be famous and you know that's up for debate in terms of being prepared to play at any given moment i don't think there was any group that put that much effort into literal practice at that time uh or or since i mean they were an absolutely i mean this this really struck me when i read books about that era and spoke to members of the band and you know they had a practice space that they were in every single day as if it were a work day this song born on the bayou that little uh e7 riff that he was that that sort of holds the whole song together that originated with john just sort of picking around on a during a sound check at the avalon ballroom uh in san francisco and they developed it into that monster groove, which is really all that song is. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's a couple extra chords, but it's mostly just that E. But you're absolutely right that as a unit, as a group, they would really hash these things out for hours and hours and hours at a time to the point where when they went into the studio, you know, they were renowned and well-known, uh, especially in San Francisco at that time for showing up and having no drugs, no booze, no anything, just sort of getting right in the studio, knocking stuff out. And then the other guys would leave while John would sort of 
mix it or add in maybe an acoustic guitar or a shaker or something like that. But even those overdubs were very minimal. Well, they um, they were known, weren't they, as as going on stage sober? Yes, uh, you know, and they had a work ethic, which kind of made them stick out from the the other kind of late sixties, just post hippie kind of out there world that they found themselves in and didn't didn't john get them all together one day and just say listen we have to take this seriously or we're going to be working back at the car wash yeah there were a few there were a few sort of moments like that where they sort of uh agreed on it and you know we're talking about like when you know something is a book one of those that i learned was when I think it was speaking to Doug early on, and he told me we were talking about this. We were talking about how they were sort of known to be, uh, I don't know if the term straight edge exists in the UK in the same way, but that's what, you know, they they, they weren't doing any of the psychedelics uh, and they weren't doing any drugs or alcohol while they were playing. And that includes practicing ever. That was like a, a set rule that they had. And one of the reasons for that was they were, you know, in San Francisco, spring 1968. So it was after they had recorded, but before I think their first record had come out. And they all went to see The Grateful Dead at the Fillmore. And they were really unimpressed by The Grateful Dead at the at the Fillmore. And that's because they were... As you can imagine, the Grateful Dead were in search of transcendence and uh, mind expansion. <laughs> and, you know, the, that that story is very well known at this point. They notably, the those guys were transplants to San Francisco, whereas the Credence guys were from the Bay Area. They were not from San Francisco. They were from across the Bay, the, what's called the East Bay. But they were not uh, arrivals who were sort of ca who came there because of the hippie dream. They were they were there, and then this thing sort of ar arose. And their model was two three minute R and B songs on the radio. They had a little bit of the same uh, like a shared uh, vocabulary for like American folk music, but not that much. And I I'm not sure how much Garcia or the rest of those guys were exploring that in that in that direct way in 1968. Well, um, you, you know how bands are and you know how scenes are in cities yes. and areas. We have exactly the same thing here in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, and especially if they start to become successful, all of the other bands will be slagging them off and talking about them behind their backs and saying, oh, they're just the straight guys and they don't really get it. And they're, you know, and they're kind of, they don't understand the the uh, the epitome of what rock and roll is. Meanwhile, right. they're having these big hits, and I imagine that that caused uh, uh, within the music scene of San Francisco itself. I, I bet you they hated them for being successful as it started to unfold. You know, it's funny. This is a this is a big part of the Credence guys' psychology. So I, of course, like I interviewed a number of people who were active in that San Francisco scene at that time, and I asked them, like, because uh, even. Springsteen mentions it in his uh, induction speech that like they weren't the coolest band. They were just the best. And, you know, they 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 had a lot of hits, but they weren't countercultural in that immediate. They, you know, they didn't have the bell bottoms and the and the sort of signifiers that we that we rely on to sort of know that someone's on the right side. So I asked a couple folks at 
who were present in San Francisco at the time, they had this nickname for them. They called Credence the Boy Scouts of Rock and Roll. And so I said, like, was it was it true that they were kind of like looked down upon at all? Everyone I spoke to, and this was not everybody that who was there, but I did speak to a number of people who were like, we all loved Credence, like as a as a band and as music. Like that was never under discussion. They did say like there was some some good natured like ribbing, and the the dead at one point did uh, dose uh, Doug with acid one time. So he played one Fillmore gig with like his like you know ass clenched to the to the to the <laughs> stool or whatever, just trying to keep it together. Um, and and to be to be also very clear it wasn't as if those guys weren't it wasn't like they played their gigs and then ran home you know they were there they did do some you know i think minor drug taking and that kind of thing just not while they were playing so yeah. but however it is absolutely true that the band themselves did feel that that was happening the band themselves very much did feel like not only hey we're the sort of odd guys out we're the straight you know nerds here at you know at the hippie function i think they felt that even more intensely because as i just said they were from the area it's like they were they knew all the san francisco music going back 20 years in terms of like r&b singles that no one else would have known about they knew all of the sort of the 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 incredible sort of pre-fillmore rock and roll teen scene that was springing up on the east bay in about 1964 1965 they were familiar with all of that and then all of a sudden the whole area gets infiltrated with like you know hippies and druggies and all of a sudden and suddenly that is what's considered san francisco music and so they definitely did feel that they were sort of on the outs in that way unfairly but i do think it's worth saying I mean, the thing that i love pointing out is that as a solo artist jerry garcia loved playing credence songs and had uh tom fogarty once he left the band played in the Jerry Garcia band for a number of years. They were beloved as a group, but they but that feeling of sort of inferiority definitely uh infected them and how they felt sort of about themselves. John, we'll we'll play Bad Moon Rising. And then mm-hmm. can you kind of talk about the Louisiana influence or the Southern influence? Because that's that's a kind of dichotomy maybe that a lot of people listening won't really no, because I, I kind of assumed before I read up on them that, oh, yeah, they'd be from down south somewhere, you know what I mean? So we'll play sure. about Moon Rising and then maybe you can go into that a bit, yeah? Happy to, sure.
Bad Moon Rising from Green River. So where did the Louisiana stuff come from, John? I think the the first place to start with that would be to point out that uh, the San Francisco Bay Area had a world-class radio culture in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And growing up where they did, they were, the, the members of Credence were able to hear a pretty extraordinary amount of R&B uh, and early rock and roll just from listening to the radio where they lived. And um, obviously much of that, uh, if it wasn't Southern, it bore a distinct Southern influence. So the, the Fogarty parents were from Montana. Uh, the mom in particular uh, had a, uh, a, a great affinity for folk music, American folk music. And so they were hearing all sorts of black music on the radio. They were, John was being exposed to music like Pete Seeger and uh, sort of black and white um, folk music that of course was coming a lot of it from the South. Uh, the Berkeley Folk Music Festival sort of originated when he was a young man and his mom would take him there. And they even got some country music stations as well uh, on, on the radio there. So I think on one hand, it definitely, they came by it naturally in the same way that like there's been plenty of American bands who bear a kind of British influence in the, you know, in the last 50 or 60 years, just because uh, we hear a lot of that music and particularly people who seek it out here. You know, the Louisiana thing kind of gets brought up a lot because they had that one album called Bayou Country, which is where Bayou, uh, Born on the Bayou is from, of course. And that song's written in the first person. Apparently, John claims that he wrote that song because he was influenced by a Jean Renoir movie called Swamp Water. Now, that's funny because that movie is actually not set in Louisiana, but it's it's set in the swamps of Georgia. His brain by that point was completely full of Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, all that Sun Records sort of, uh, which I think the Sun Records influence is probably most best heard on uh, Bad Moon Rising. I mean, that sort of country stomp with a little bit of uh, slapback on it just comes straight from Memphis. Another Memphis uh, group that they were, I mean, that they idolized above all others was uh, Booker T and the MGs who not only were known for their own songs like Green Onions, but also were uh, the backing band for most of uh, the Stax record uh, stable, uh, Stax records stable uh, during that time in the 60s as well. So these are four guys who knew and frankly, like studied a lot of Southern black music. Beyond that, I think you can kind of like, fill in the rest of it with just sort of, you know, songwriting creativity. You know, it doesn't take too much of a great leap to to have those types of influences in your mind and just make it a a character song about someone from that area. That that particular song, Bad Moon Rising, is um it's three chords. I used mm-hmm. to buskin. Um <laughs> and it's it's a classic pop song as much as anything yes. else. You know, if you looking back at where the influence yeah. the sound and the slapback and all that. It's just a, a classic pop song in its simplest way. Uh, and it, it also does the, the great Motown thing of it's a really joyous sing-along song with incredibly dark lyrics. Yeah, definitely. You know, which I love. 
with it with him being a Fogarty, so there's Irishness in there as well. That is a a big thing, you know, uh, from Ireland is is great sing along songs with him incredibly uh, dark and traumatic and often tragic lyrics that's shot right through all of his songwriting isn't it and i think one reason why it's why he's uh it's it's lasted and it's you know and, and each new generation finds something new in it it was always played at our school discos <laughs> the other the other thing about bad moon rising is uh, for my generation it was it was a major component of the film uh, american werewolf in london yeah of course see that film Yes, of course. Was, uh, Bad Moon Rising is part of the film, and it would have been the first time a lot of people had heard it, where they would have made it come into their consciousness. That and a Moon Dance by Van Morrison. Everybody of, of my generation remembers Jenny Agatha getting a kiss off in the shower, don't they, Mick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were all affected by that, weren't we? <laughs> that wasn't that bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mick, um, it's a great record to dance to, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah, it's you know, you can't not yeah. dance to it. We went straight think, to the wall with that one because people do talk about the the irregularity of them being Californian but writing about the South, the Southern stuff in the sense of the like the Bayou component. To me, and I think what we're getting at here is like it's just one part of the stew. Like the thing that to me makes them last so well is the fact that they do. They take so many different influences. I think the country music influence is definitely where you get some of that Irishness uh, and that sort of folk music component. And I think the Irish point is a great one to make. I love that. I didn't even think of the the Irishness of Fogarty, to be honest. But um, but at the same time, I mean, they they have these R&B things, which is what accounts for the danceability of all these songs, even some of them that are really scary. You know, they're, they're pop music structures, but they're written about real things in the sense of like, it's not just a scary song. It's a song about like uh, tragedy coming forward, which had a lot of, uh, you know, relevance for people in the, at the height of the Vietnam War. And I think that comes from the folk music aspect of what they were doing. And then, like I said, with the radio, that goes to what the production, the simplicity of that production and that arrangement to me came from the fact that their taste in music was built on the radio. And radios were, of course, not hi-fis at that time. They were, you know, car radios and, uh, you know, sort of early stereo equipment. You had to have pretty great instrument separation and, you know, some pretty simplistic mixing to make sure that it sounded amazing in that context and so i think from there is where john sort of learned the tricks of like when the singing is happening don't play the lead guitar and turn the vocals up when the vocals aren't happening boost the lead guitar keep the bass sort of low and thumping on the back keep the you know it's just like it's that simplicity to me it's, it sounds that makes, cool, isn't it but you know it's yeah there's plenty of people who wouldn't have got that you know but he intuitively understood it and you can hear it in the songs and what it kind of leads us on and what I particularly loved discovering in the past uh, couple of days of immersing myself in everything to do with them is that he should then kind of go on to write arguably the classic song, uh, you know, protest song, countercultural song, even though they're supposedly unhip uh, about mm -hmm. the Vietnam War. But it's actually really not about the Vietnam War. It's a song about class, 
which is exactly. such a rare thing for a band who are doing well to write about. You know, even in this day and age, not many people write about class. And, you know, arguably class is the one thing that the uh, of all of our parts of our identity that is not spoken about uh, enough or we realize how important it is in our life. You know, it all boils down to class in the end. Completely. And I think at that point, too, so many like there were schisms of all kinds happening in the U.S. when he wrote Fortunate Son. There was pro-war, anti-war baseline one, I think, especially for younger people like him, was this generational conflict. There was a major disconnect between younger people and older people then. And it's a really fascinating song that that is not the disconnect that he's writing about. It's entirely he was, in fact, inspired by the the wedding of uh, Nixon's daughter. She basically married another like this, like the son of a uh, person uh, who was in his administration. And so he was looking at people his age on TV, Julie Nixon and this other and, and her new husband. And that's what inspired this sense of like, it ain't me. It wasn't looking at older people who were pro-war, which I think just tended to be the more typical viewpoint at that time. He he was finding a schism in, in the class way that I think was really unique and that I really don't think you can underestimate just how powerful and and interesting that was at the time. You know, perhaps even brave. I don't know. It was definitely taken as an anti-war song, but I agree with you. It's 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 not an inherently anti-war song, or at least that's not the that's not the direct meaning of it.
I absolutely love about this um, is it would have provided a, a focal point for the conversation about what he's talking about. You know, he he doesn't have to write this song, does he? And and he's probably going to get flack for it because he's he's you know he's not messing around. He's hitting every target here with he's talking about the flag, you know, red, white, and blue, and star spangled, and all of that sort of stuff. It's incredible because it it's so pertinent to today. Uh, what's going on today? As soon as, a, as there's a war situation anywhere in the world, we have this top down uh, attempt to manufacture our consent, attempt to make us all join in behind the patriotism, you know, and in the song, he's exposing that, isn't he? We have it in this country right now, the worst that we've ever had it, you know, with with a lot of grifting right-wing commentators making a lot of money by saying as many outrageous things as they can, you know, whether racist or sexist or, and then painting the rest of us as unpatriotic. You know, the, the key one at the moment is the Ukraine, what's going on in Ukraine. You know, we have uh, from the very top they're trying to manufacture our consent for Ukraine. We've got it right here in Liverpool at the moment without anybody actually saying we need a, a, an anti-war voice, which isn't a pro-Russian voice. It's just an anti-war voice. And let's talk seriously about what is, you know, there's, there's much more to it than what we're being told. And that's, that's his point here in this song, isn't it? It's fantastic. What's also really interesting at that time, so that song came out in 1969. So the the tide had really turned against the Vietnam conflict in America by that point. Uh, public opinion was largely against them. It was after the uh, it was after the Tet Offensive uh, by this point, and the the number of casualties was mounting in a way that was really beginning to scare people. And I think it was understood there was this terrible class imbalance in terms of who was fighting and who was dying. We have come to a much greater understanding since then because there's been scholarship and and uh, and history and everything written about, about this exact issue, including a, an incredible book that I read for this called uh, Working Class War by Christian Appy, which really gets into the extent to which that war was different in this way than previous wars for the United States. It was something like, you know, thousands upon thousands of Ivy League graduates graduated in the 1960s and something like, you know, a couple dozen of them went to Vietnam or something like that. And there were people were given reprieves from fighting for uh, as long as their job was working, you know, for the work for the war effort. But, you know, on some levels, uh, for some people that could be, you know, working for uh, a dishwasher company or something like, you know, there were all sorts of like sort of white collar uh, middle-class jobs that were given these incredible uh, reprieves from that, that working-class people, of course, did not have the ability to do that. He was well ahead of his of his time in time in terms of talking about the class distinctions among people who were fighting in that war. They, they were deep into their run of hits by the time that Fortunate Son came out, and it was not one of their biggest ones. Um, it went top 20, but it was not one of their highest charting hits that most of their big songs went to number two. They very famously never had a number one song while they were, while they were around, but they had many number twos. I think they have the record for the most number two singles or something like that. It's a little bit like, it reminds me of Paul McCartney releasing Give Ireland Back to the Irish in amongst this 
run of huge hits that McCartney had when he, you know, when he started to go solo. And in amongst it, he dropped this highly and deeply politically controversial song and stood by it, you know, and said, and, and even argued with the with the guy, the main guy at EMI about it. He said, you're putting it out and that's that. And in a way, that's kind of what John Fogarty's done there, isn't he? He's, he's kind of said, this is something I believe and I'm going to, I'm going to put it out and uh, it's immense bravery from him because I imagine there was, he was getting uh, trouble from one angle or another. Well, I'll tell you, it was embraced by soldiers in Vietnam. Uh, first of all, uh, it was uh, a very meaningful song to that group of people. Uh, it was played. I mean, Credence was played a lot, but that song in particular was played a lot as was bad moon rising uh, for people in the country who were fighting at the time. And I think since then, it's become sort of a, a staple of movies about that war. You know, it's like you can't have a, like a you can't have the scene of the chopper coming in over the jungle without hearing the the bass riff and the guitar thing. It's just like part of the um, <laughs> it's part of the aesthetic of what we think of in that war. Yeah, the song itself, I, I, I from from what I understand, it wasn't. I don't think it was considered quite as controversial in the way that you're talking about with McCartney okay. with Give Ireland Back to the Irish, but um, okay. but only because I think you're right that it wasn't quite understood in the same way that it was intended. I think it was just sort of taken as an anti-war song. And so people who were pro-war just went like, oh, stuff it over there. And the, and the, and the anti-war people were like, great, we'll take it as an anthem. You know, and if the in tide the had already turned, then... He's yes. kind of not really going against the, uh, you know, the, the general rule of play, is he, you know, he's kind but, of... But, you know, I think it's worth saying that, you know, even among anti-war songs of that time, it just rocks. Like, it's it's a really heavy song, you know? It's not like you hear a, so many bands being born, Con, you're in the first... Totally, oh, totally. Oh. You know, it's, a, it's an anti-war song, but it it's not like a festival sing-along or a kind of like merry prankster style, like stick it to the man, let your freak flag fly kind of song. It's a, it's a hard hitting rock song in the, uh, you know, sort of buried deep in the, their third album of 1969, Willie and the Poor Boys. And Willie and the Poor Boys is an amazing record, but it's not, that's that's definitely the hardest hitting song on it and it's not a long song either it's like a white album p track it's uh it's just over two minutes or something so i think that really distinguishes it too is it's not only its content but it's the sound of it is is really quite extraordinary it is there's something uh, that has struck me uh musically while we've been listening to them that's two minutes 21 that song and bad moon rising is about the same Mm -hmm. And also, there's something very specific which you very rarely hear: uh, is there's there's no harmonies, and that is so rare. Even for back then, it, now it's just unheard of. So it and it's kind of refreshing, isn't it? When you listen, it's just one single voice right mm -hmm. down the middle. There's no oohs, ahs. There's no uh, musical devices coming into the chorus or anything like that. It's just him singing it. So it stands alone on whatever melodic in, into invention that he has you know yeah it's absolutely right they had they had a few sort of album cuts and of course proud mary has a little bit of that like rolling kind of background vocal sound as well 
but you're absolutely right that background vocals were not like a core component of the sound and not uh you know not a regular uh component of their sound it was it's very much like you say it's like you can hear whatever's playing you can hear it and there's like you know you can just imagine them fiddling with five knobs and that's it it's like four <laughs> instruments and vocals what what's fascinating too to read about music listening culture in vietnam for so for american soldiers there were a number of ways that these guys would hear music over there the probably the biggest one would be the px which is the sort of the sort of cities that they would build like the bases that they would build in vietnam would contain you know places for people to live and barracks and and all the other stuff but they would also contain record stores so they you, you could be in country in Vietnam and you could go and buy a hi-fi and go to the record store and purchase records. And a lot of these guys, because Credence's first record came out in 1968, a lot of people heard them for the first time because they saw a cool colored record sleeve and bought it in in Vietnam and brought it back and then they you know bought a hi-fi system or they would trade pieces of hi-fi systems between each other and sort of Frankenstein a system together for themselves then you would hear armed forces radio uh which played to those guys over their radios as well you would go to maybe a bar either in the city or at the px and you they would have a little you know tinny radio mounted up there or you could go and hear a fairly big occurrence, which was Asian bands covering Western songs. So you could go to a bar in, I don't know, Hanoi maybe, and you could hear a group of four Vietnamese women performing rock songs and singing them without even perhaps knowing English. And so they would sing credence wow. songs in a vietnamese accent and like if you imagine like all of those contexts credence fits really well in all of them because they sound great on a crappy little radio they sound great if you went and bought the record and they have great record sleeves so if you put it on an actual hi-fi it sounds tremendous they sound great if you go to hear a cover band play them like they're not hard songs to play musically you know what i mean they the the achievement of them is in these sort of subtleties but you anyone can come together and play the three songs and so with all of those they're all they all sound great and then if you're in there you're over there and maybe your friends are dying or injured or you're worried about it and you're doing a lot of drugs and whatever your sort of experience may be then you actually listen to the songs and the songs are about hope you are quite prepared to die you know all these other sort of like uh nightmarish visions if they're not about like wanting to be home or you know uh put a candle in the window and that kind of stuff and there weren't any love songs they wrote no love songs at all which to me is just as crazy as the harmony thing because it's like not only they had no harmonies they never wrote just a straight love song at all you know i just think that really speaks to the sort of character and the experience of what people were going through at that time it's like a wonderful music that sounds incredible but if you need it to fulfill you on that deeper level it can easily 
uh, do that and does not feel disposable after listening to it a few times at all. That is amazing, isn't it? I never knew that about the Vietnamese girls singing it. Obviously, we've seen Good Morning Vietnam and Apocalypse Mm -hmm. Now, and that kind of illustrates some of what you were saying. But wow, I'd love to see that depicted dramatically of a couple of girls in a bar in Hanoi or whatever singing, you know. No, it was apparently a, a, a quite a quite common experience uh, or, you know, a quite common thing that there would be people learning these songs phonetically who didn't yeah, yeah. speak English and so didn't know even what they were saying, um, singing it in an accent and that kind of thing. And, they, you know, I'm always I, I'm always hesitant to uh, share this anecdote because I don't want to make it sound as if I'm somehow like uh, mocking an accent or something like that. But multiple people I've read about have reported remembering hearing uh, uh, Proud Mary for the first time because rolling on a river got translated as lolling on a, on a liver. And so like you would hear this sort of like strange uh, cadence that'll catch your ear for sure. But I, you know, I'm sure it was not just Credence. It was tons of other bands. I'm sure they were singing uh, Aretha Franklin and, uh, and, and maybe Marvin Gaye or, or anyone else at the same time as well. We have okay. a thing here in Liverpool every year in the, the uh, Beatles week and the bands come from all over the world and they've all got uh, peculiar takes on on very, you know, well-known Beatles classics. So you hear like, you know, uh, Russian versions, Japanese versions, Bolivian versions. So we've, we've heard every accent sing, <laughs> I want to hold your hand. And it, it is amusing to us, obviously, because it's because we're from here, but, you know. And so- sometimes there's a Japanese Beatles copy band called the Parrots, and they sat there English when they sung. It was brilliant. But the banter in between the songs, obviously, it was just Japanese, because that was the... But they had brilliant accents. They sounded like Lennon and McCartney singing. And yet in mm-hmm. between the songs, it was just pure Japanese, because that was the only thing new. Anyway, the next one we're going to play is, uh, is the first song I remember hearing from Credence on the radio.
around the bend from Cosmos Factory. And um, you're saying in your book, John, that, that they hit their commercial zenith at that time. That was where they were at the kind of peak commercially. And, and probably, do you think, artistically? I mean, probably. I would say that's that's probably my favorite Creed song, to be honest. I mean, I, I just think that song embodies everything they did so well. Um, but it's hard to pick one, of course. They had those three records in 1969. And then very shortly after, in early 1970, was when uh, Cosmos Factory came out. Like most of their records, it was sort of half singles that had already been released by that point, including Up Around the Bend. They were just huge at that point. And, and early 1970 was, of course, the that was the time when they took their first international tour. So that was when they first came to the UK and to Europe, when they famously performed at the Royal Albert Hall and a number of other places throughout Europe like that. So it was a huge moment for them. Artistically, I think the first track on that record, which is... Oh my God! Now I'm going to lose my biographer's license for forgetting the name of the uh, of the first track, which is "Ramble Tamble." Of course, uh, "Ramble Tamble" to me is just a pretty unreal recording. Uh, that is a unlike anything that they had done before, and it's you know as just a sort of opening salvo for an album. I think it did sort of set a certain standard for the 70s. You know, it's not a single. It's seven minutes long. It sort of goes through multiple different uh, movements. It goes through, you know, it has a lot of the same, it has the country influence. It has a more sort of like space rock thing happening in the middle. Um, it has those, uh, you know, those really dark, something awful's coming lyrics as well. And then the album ends with uh, Long As I Can See the Light, which is one of their best sort of more acoustic ballads as well. I mean, that, that whole record is incredible. And their, their version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine, personally, this is probably sacrilege. I prefer it to the Marvin Gaye one. I just, I remember me mate trying to play that on an acoustic guitar, the bass line from it, when we were about 13 or 14. And I, mm -hmm. every time I hear their version, which isn't much, it sends shivers down my spine. It was. It's like he's written it, and you can't say anything more about the song than that. It, he makes it his own, doesn't he? You know. I know most people are prepared Marvin Gaye's and for very good reasons, but for me, that one, wow. Yeah, I think they absolutely found a different feeling in that song than Marvin had done or Gladys Knight had done. And you know, that's a that's a great example. We we talked about Ramble Tamble and now the the other long song on Cosmos Factory. They did have, like, for all the sort of emphasis that they had on singles and tight, you know, sort of R&B style songs, they did have a, a, a number of long ones, you know, that in that tradition, you know, you sort of had to have long songs when you were in San Francisco at the time, because it was sort of just something that you had to do. It was like people really wanted to sort of ride the wave with you on a certain level. Um, their first single, of course, was another uh, long cover uh Suzy Q. So that was uh, another kind of like reinvention of a 50s tune into a, you know, a sort of driving one chord vamp for, for eight or 10 minutes or whatever. And what's fascinating too is like even on those long songs, they were rehearsed. They weren't jams in the way that we tend to think of. They went into the studio with a very distinct idea of like how this long song would be arranged 
and how they like what were the like how they would get from one place to another and how they would sort of move it through the solo and out and how long the solo would be yeah even in their sort of uh loosest sounding moments they were still uh very much in control of their process the john fogarty's playing in um in the uk and europe this month mm -hmm. have, have you seen him perform live at all um Jack? no i have i in? haven't no. seen him no um, Other than in clips and things, it seems that he's, I mean, he's as active right now as he's probably ever been as a, as certainly as a solo performer, you know, I, as I think this book really gets into I, it's, I don't think that he really enjoyed his time in Credence. And I, and I don't mean that just strictly in terms of like an interpersonal like he disliked his bandmates or anything. I don't think it was that simple. And I, I don't think he just purely disliked those guys either. What I what I mean when I say that is, and it reminds me a lot of Springsteen in his memoir, uh, sort of talking about early in his career, he had that kind of breakdown where he just sort of looked at himself and was like, I'm so famous, I'm so successful, and I'm not having any fun at all. And he really like worked in therapy to change that or to understand that and sort of get to the bottom of why that is. And Fogarty, I want to stop short of psychoanalyzing him or anything like that, but I definitely got the sense that, you know, he was the manager as well as the vocalist, soul songwriter, tour manager as well, uh, you know, producer of the records, soul soloist, all these other things. He just sort of kept sort of tossing stuff onto his shoulders to carry around while this band was happening. And I think at a certain point, yeah, I couldn't tell you whether he was unhappy, I suppose, but he definitely doesn't seem to be having a lot of fun. Can you at one point uh, say to the rest of the band, uh, all right, well, we'll all just write three songs each. You all sing your songs and you, you know, and, and he's kind of democratically handing back some sort of power, which they were asking for, by the way. John Landau said it was the, the worst record ever made by a major. Yeah, so the big sort of breakup, breakdown, I suppose, that happened, you know, and, you know, after many years of John taking on these different responsibilities, and some he was incredible at, you know, nobody argued the, the man could write songs, no one argued that the guy could, you know, had a had a creative vision and could play and was just sort of on a different level, creatively and musically, uh, not only than the band, but than most people. I mean, he was a he was a savant as a as a record maker from a very young age, like predating their fame. But on top of that, like I said, he would take on these sort of additional responsibilities, sort of because he didn't trust other people to do it. He didn't trust other people to be a business manager. So he became the business manager. And he was a frankly disastrous business manager in a lot of ways for the band, not to blame him for all of their financial problems they had, but he definitely was not, it's no knock on him to say that he was not in a position to like bargain for a better you know, royalty rate just because he's a 22 year old guy who writes songs or whatever. And, and he would express his 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 sort of domineering attitude over the band in a lot of different ways including like preventing them from singing background vocals in the studio 
He eventually stopped them from, from performing encores at their concerts, which was so sort of my book starts with an anecdote of the crowd at the Royal Albert Hall going absolutely crazy for them and expecting that they'd come back for an encore and they just don't because John says that's not what we do. And so everyone's just sort of left confused and uh, and just weirded out by this whole thing. So he he was he was having this sort of like, you know, simultaneously, I have to carry this band, but I also need to like make sure that everyone understands I'm in the I'm in the driver's seat here to his mind. And, and this is you're there's never going to be a full understanding of exactly how this went down. But the two sides of the story are either that John came to his two remaining bandmates because his brother quit the band. His brother, who was a singer before John began singing, who was the leader of the band before they became Credence, who was older and a really lovely singer from what everyone says. He never got to sing anything on a Credence. He was a songwriter. He never got to write songs that appeared on Credence records. Back when they were, they were now a trio again, reduced to a trio. And apparently it was either, if you believe John, that the other two band members came and said, we demand that we write songs because you're stealing all the spotlight and we want to have some of it for ourselves. Or if you believe Doug and Stu, that John came to them and said, you guys want to have a bigger say in the creative process? You think you can do what I can do? Well, from now on, for our next record, you're going to write three songs each. And I'm not going to help you write them. And I'm not going to really do much for you in terms of, you know, playing on them. You know, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to, you know, it was just sort of like, you're on your own. I'll play guitar and we'll take it from there. People are going to argue about this forever. The members of Credence argued about it forever in interviews and in other things. Like, I, I, I did not want this book to be a sort of like a, a refereeing of that final instance because I don't think it's what's important about them as a group but it is fascinating I tend to come down on the side that it just if you look at their relationship prior to this it makes more sense that John came to them and said go ahead you do your thing you want to you want to do what I can do see what you can do naturally Doug and Stu who are a bass player and drummer and not songwriters like it's if you can imagine, it's a pretty tough thing to debut as a songwriter on a famous band's album where half the songs are written by John Fogarty. Like you're just you're you're gonna suffer in comparison, I'd say. And those songs aren't terrible. They're just they're just good rock and roll songs. You know, they're there's they're they're pretty undistinguished, but not at all bad. That just to me makes more sense, especially when you consider that his next move after the band breaks up. The record that came out with the other people's songs on it was called Mardi Gras. It was savaged in the press, including by, as you say, John Landau. John Fogarty's next move was to record a record as it was not billed to John Fogarty. It was billed to the Blue Ridge Rangers. And it was a collection of classic, like old school country music songs. And he performed every single instrument on it. That's how I, I, I kind of started the entire uh podcast with that because I had that experience of I got a publishing deal mm -hmm. and two, two of the lads in the band immediately went okay there's 
there's money there. I've written some songs. Can we have them on as B-sides or whatever? Sure. And I'd go, I, and I'd go okay, well, let's hear them. And they kind of maybe play me a little riff or some chords and they go, um, okay. I go, where's the song? Where's the words? Where's the melody? Uh-huh. Where's the arrangement? Oh, yeah. You do that. <laughs> you haven't written a song then, have you? Right. Or right. one of them came in with a song that just wasn't very good at all. So it's really bloody hard to write good songs. You know, it's yeah. really hard. If you're the only one doing it, there's a lot of pressure on you. And you would actually be relieved if the bass player or the keyboard player came along and went, played you something and it was really good. You'd go, oh, yeah, sure. Not for that. <laughs> you know, I'm getting some assistance in this department. Right. So right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, I think there's, there's a couple pieces of evidence here, which is like John or the other members of the band, those two members of the band, Doug and Stu never, uh, like brought songs in before they were never like hey let's do a song and john pushed them aside and then finally in 1972 is like okay let's do one of yours they never appeared to desire to be songwriters or to capitalize on the publishing as you say that kind of thing tom i think was frustrated on that level tom as i say if if not as a songwriter I mean, they performed many covers. They recorded covers for their records. And John was, by all accounts, or Tom was, by all accounts, a great sort of tenor rock and roll singer. Um, He was, uh, Doug and Stu, to me, compared him to, uh, like, Richie Valens. And apparently he sang a wonderful version of La Bamba, as, you know, for just for an example. So he had that kind of sort of, like, clean tenor song tenor sound and again had that before john was you know out of uh out of his uh school days and the two of them the brothers did write their very first songs together that's what helped them get the deal with fantasy records was these series of songs that they had written uh tom wrote at least one song walk on the water that appeared on the first credence record so he was he was a capable songwriter again perhaps not at the level of john fogarty but like how many people are at the level of john fogarty when it comes to writing songs and that's that's no crime they put out three lps in 1969 and you can't find room you can't find room on one of them to let your brother sing you know sing on an album track you know it's just it seems odd to me and and he just sort of continually established these sort of um displays of dominance in the band creatively and otherwise that the that the rest of the group went along with because i think they all knew i mean number one the band was incredibly successful the songs were incredibly fun to play they were playing in front of tens of thousands of people all the time and on television they knew that john was like a special talent and um worked hard to make them what they were I want to stop here just because I don't want to sound like I'm any kind of like anti-Fogarty kind of person. If anything, writing this book, Fogarty's reputation kind of precedes him in terms of his being a sort of difficult guy to get along with. I went into this book with that sense, that expectation that I would sort of discover more about him. And the more I learned, I came away with uh, an, an incredible respect for him more than anything else you know i think 
all of these interpersonal things on some level can be chalked up to, you know, unmedicated depression, you know, like whatever, you know, whatever you want to say. And the fact that they were so young, like all of this stuff, the entire career of this band, by the time they break up, these guys are 26 years old. As, Which, jo as Johnny Marr uh, had just uh, split with the Smiths and he was doing a, a session with Paul McCartney and he can't believe he's in the room with Paul McCartney and he's thinking when the session ends, he's the one guy I can ask about how you deal with the trauma of your band splitting up. He's in the biggest band ever. So he says to Paul at the end of the session, tells him the whole story, Paul, you know, have you got any advice for me? And McCartney just looks at him and goes, that's bands for you. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's true, exactly exactly uh, yeah. yes you know and i find that really true and fascinating yeah like on the one hand there's nothing special about the fact that they broke up this way and it's far more incredible and unique that fogarty was able to write these songs so quickly uh so powerfully produce them so uh beautifully they've they've stayed popular they've you know they've they've lasted that's an achievement of all four of them in my mind he's a control freak isn't he i mean i yeah. mean you haven't had time to mention yet but they they were on a woodstock and then after they play woodstock and by all means people love them okay they didn't do an encore they love right. them at woodstock and yet he wouldn't allow them to appear on the record or on the film exactly Right, because he didn't think it was up to their standards. And it was like... <laughs> there you go. Yeah, of course. Right, well... And on top of that, while I was writing this, and this, I, I've, I've, I've spoken this point aloud before, but it's it's worth pointing out that like I was researching and, and writing this book as the sort of uh, Me Too movement was really gathering steam uh, or, you know, sort of had gathered steam and was, uh, was very much in, and still is in the conversation, of course, and when we talk about Fogarty being a terror or whatever, we're talking about him being personally difficult to deal with. We're talking about a guy who, like you say, is a control freak. And not to downplay that, but it doesn't rise to the level of like physical abuse or like actual, uh, you know, he, he was he was not an evil person or, uh, you know, he was he was a, he was a young man doing his best in crazy circumstances, managed to achieve some unbelievable things in that time. That's partly because of his band, and it's partly because uh, he wrote amazing songs, and it's partly because of a lot of things. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, when I look at a guy who at that point was so young, you know, much younger than I am, and when I was, when I was writing this book, I just, I, I, I can, I can, he didn't hit anybody. I can forgive almost anything. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's like you say. Yeah. It's just it's it's interpersonal stuff. Yeah, that to me is uh, is the big takeaway. The remarkable thing is that they were together and created what they did, and what happened as a result or afterwards is is unfortunate, but pales in comparison to uh, the fact that we all know and love these songs fifty years later. Amen. That's all that counts for sure. Well well, look, John, thanks for joining us today. We're going to end with uh, Have You Ever Seen the Rain from Pendulum. Uh, we won't be playing anything from Mardi Gras, although Sweet Hitchhiker is good, isn't it? Um, There's a few good songs on Mardi Gras, yeah, yeah, yeah for right. sure. So it's John Lingham anyway. His book is called A Song for Everyone, 
the story of Credence Clearwater Revival. Many, many thanks for joining us, John. It's been fascinating. Great book, great pictures as well, by the way. Great photographs as well. Thank you and, so uh, much. And a cracking cover. And yeah, covers are really important. Job. Get they your are. cover right. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you both. This was uh, a, a, a wonderful uh, invitation and a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Fantastic. You have to come to we'll Liverpool, just... John. You'd be very welcome. Oh, I can't wait. Any, oh, God. I, you know, I lived in, uh, in London and in Norwich for a time when I was in college uh, and didn't do enough traveling around the UK and would love to to come back and God as a as a music fan I like I could come to Liverpool just to do tours and hear uh hear shows all the time I would love to can't wait all right take care John see you mate see ya take care <laughs>